0: Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 139 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter and musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. Something a little bit different this week on the podcast as we celebrate the release of Paul Weller's new book, Magic, A Journal of Song, through a conversation with its curator, journalist, and author, Dylan Jones. The book takes us from in the city to fat pop songwriting, from the jam in Paul Weller's teenage years to creating the Style Council. Through to his years as a solo musician, we have 120 songs spanning his entire musical career. It's Weller at his most candid and intimate account of his musical life to date, as told to Dylan Jones, a previous podcast guest. So something a bit different on this week, as I say, let's get into it. Dylan Jones, thanks for joining me.
2: Pleasure. Very nice to be here.
1: Lovely to see you again. Now, we spoke back in July 2021, believe it or not. I mean, goodness me, time flies, right? And at that time, there was no mention of Magic, a journal of song by Paul Weller with Dylan Jones. This was new news that came in after our podcast recording. Um, and as soon as it did, I was like, oh, man, I missed something there. Presumably, this was all in in train at that moment in time. You just couldn't tell me about it, right?
2: Um, I think it probably was. I think that over the last sort of four or five years, I suppose, I've done a lot of journalistic work with Paul as we all know during that period each record has been sort of better than the one before he's he's been going for a real purple patch releasing so many great records I think there's there's even been instructions from his management to calm down a bit (laughs) with all this extraordinary material but in all seriousness then we did um, a series of podcasts
1: was that 20 or 21 I can't remember which year it was it would have been 20 Uh, because it was on sunset time wasn't it yeah
2: yeah yeah you're right you're right it seemed to go very well I certainly enjoyed it and i think unusually pulled it because i think i think he often views these things as any sort of publicity as being sort of necessary evil i don't think he loves it but i think um we got on well enough to consider doing this book and when it was suggested i have to say i was um uh, i was incredibly excited because certainly giving the amount of time that he gave was a big ask but he did it brilliantly. He was enthusiastic, I think. I hope that we spoke about things that, that he's never spoken about before. So from my point of view, it was a completely joyous experience. I also
1: think, you know, if you imagine yourself, that teenager that we talked about when you were on the podcast before, you know, the Nags Head, High Wycombe, May 1977. And here we are all this time later. I mean, this is as close as we're ever going to get, I think, to a Paul Weller autobiography, really. Could you imagine that? Uh, no, of course I couldn't. No.
2: <laughs> However, I mean, it shows you how life and time plays tricks with you. I remember going to see Paul play the Albert Hall in kind of 92, maybe, which is probably, you know, the 15 years after I first saw him. I'm wearing a suit. He's wearing a suit. And I'm thinking, this is very odd. This is very strange. We've both come a long way. <laughs> <laughs> so I never thought uh, we'd arrive at this stage, but I, I do think you're right. I think it's it's the closest that Paul will probably ever do to... um writing his autobiography.
1: You've decided in terms of the narrative to start at the beginning, and we run through every album. But also, the really interesting bit is there are four sections. Most people, you go, okay, The Jam, The Style Council, Paul Weller Solo. But no, no, no. We've got The Jam, The Style Council, we've got Going Solo, so those early years you just mentioned there. But then The Purple Years, which again, you just referred to. How did you decide how to break up the book in that way? Uh,
2: common sense, I think. And also, uh, I don't think either of us wanted to do anything that was too tricksy. Paul was at, went to great lengths to encourage me to write as much as possible, but I deliberately wanted it to be his book i kind of rein myself in because people are buying this book for him not for me but i think it was important to have the later section because i think that if you take most artists and i think we can talk about most great artists too they don't make their great work towards the end of their careers or to, towards the latter part of their career and much as i love people like brian wilson and the who and i mean lots of people you can pick any great artist that we all love and revere it's unlikely that they're going to make their very, very best work 30 or 40 or 50 years after they first appeared. It's just very unusual. People have a, a narrative arc. Neil Tennant says, I think he calls it the kind of regal period, the imperial period. He calls it something. And I think it's right. And a lot of artists, they've, you kind of work this out mathematically, perhaps sort of have a seven year period in which they are imperious and they create their greatest work. That's possibly based on the on the lifespan, the professional lifespan of the Beatles. But yeah, I I think it um, it's important to acknowledge that Paul Weller is one of the few people to have have bucked that that post-war seventy-year trend. Because I think that the half a dozen records he's made in the last half a dozen years have been absolutely extraordinary. And I think that anyone who knows or cares about his work would agree
1: with me. Obviously, I don't want to give away too many spoilers because people are eagerly waiting their book. Arriving, And trust me, you're not going to be disappointed. It's a beautiful publication, not least the words and the the story of Paul, but the photographs, everything that's packaged within it is absolutely stunning. But there are so many bits where you're right, Paul talking for the very first time about certain elements, and we'll dig into some of those stories. I want to start right back at the beginning and how it all started in the city and the fact that he's talking about how few original songs they had. I think 40% of their stage set list he was talking about were covers. And this was right at the beginning of like 76. So not far from them being catapulted onto... um, into the record deal and the albums and all that kind of stuff. But he's quite critical of the early albums, isn't he? He's kind of going, there are little moments on them, but they're not great.
2: Well, I think one of Paul's most appealing traits is he's he's a very harsh critic of his... I mean, he's a very harsh critic of other people's work, too, but he's an incredibly harsh critic of his own work. And yes, I think he looks back at those records as being innovative, groundbreaking, Disruptive, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think he he considers some of the songwriting and some of the performances to be kind of under par. But then they were newbies; they were they were fresh out of the box. And even though the band had a um a, a big touring history, you go into a recording studio for the first time; it's a novel experience. However, I think that you can take sort of half a dozen songs from the first album and some from the second album, which are kind of extraordinary. Perhaps taken as a whole. Those records aren't uh, amazing in the grand scheme of things, but they certainly lay the foundation for what came later.
1: He also talks about very early on, being um, always being into melodies. And this is something that weaves its way throughout the whole book, actually. But he talks about from you know, from a really long, young age, actually being able to see the craft of so- you know songwriting, seeing as a thing with, with his favourite bands, the bands he loved, the Beatles, the Who, you mentioned the Kings, people like that, and listening to these melodies, filling his head with images and thoughts, which, again, we see then transported into so many of his songs. But that came from a really young age, didn't it? Yes, it
2: did. There's a salient difference between having the ability to soak up influences and to be inspired by music and landscape and books and poetry and film and fashion and sociology and politics, I think there's a difference between that and having the ability to actually fuse that into melody. Because I think that, again, returning to that idea of people, artists, entertainers, musicians, songwriters, perhaps not writing their best material towards sort of middle to later period of their careers. I don't think people lose the, the dynamism. They don't u- lose the excitement. They obviously are far more experienced and they often have the same principles and they're more adept at, at channeling the DNA of what they do and what they are. But they might not get better at articulating it or indeed wrapping that in me- melody. There was a a great piece in The New Yorker a few years ago about McCartney, and it was talking about his proficiency as a songwriter, but it was less about his proficiency as a songwriter and more about his ability to write melody. And I think Weller's like that. I think Paul's like that, that he can write melodies. And lots of people run out of melody, Mm. and he hasn't,
1: not yet anyway. There's a bit where you talk about actually much later in his career, but one of those recent Purple Patch albums, True Meanings. And, and ultimately, you're know, saying, you know, it's an absolute masterpiece. But the fact that you can hum every song and I love that. I thought, I was like, yeah, you're absolutely right. But that comes back to that melody point, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, I think that I think there was always a suspicion, particularly in the early punk days. Melody was um, it was perceived to be kind of old school. Uh, and there's the the famous sort of English Rose story, which Paul elaborates on in the book, that being somehow embarrassed to write something that was that intricate, that melodic, and perhaps that personal and that sort of soft. Because I think in the, the first couple of years of punk, everything had to be hard, with a hard edge, and everyone was angry. And of course, that was part of the excitement. But to deny melody and to deny craftsmanship and the art of songwriting uh, was quite soon seen to be a bit bonkers. But you're right. You take an album like True Meanings and
1: everyone's a winner. Obviously, this is a book. There's plenty of words, over 25,000 of them. And he talks about writing and how he writes lyrics throughout the book as well. Let's talk about setting suns. Cause this is one where he said, first of all, that the, the songs came from the words. It was a, a very wordy album was how he described it. Um, and the whole album being very much lyrics first. And I hadn't, I'd forgotten this because now we listen to music on, you know, on the Alexa speaker and we, you know, shout out the speaker in the corner and get its playthings, but I'd forgotten songs like Burning Sky being a letter when you see it laid out in your book and you look back at the sleeve notes of the album again you're like oh yeah it was there was a deer at the beginning and a um, yours at the end and stuff but the words on that album particularly really seem to attach themselves to the audience but they just meant so much to people but he's always loved the written word doesn't he not just in terms of songs but poetry all that
2: and that certainly started to come true or come to the fore in the sort of third and fourth jam albums there were obviously periods where he was far more into the the sound, the sonic, when the, the jam went through the kind of gang of four period. <laughs> and he was taking the idea of modernism in a very particular way. But yeah, the art and the craft of writing, not just songwriting, but writing is, is very important to Paul. And he developed a way to channel that into pop. And when it really works, like in any great pop medium, um, the great pop single, the great pop song, is when those two things fuse together. I mean, Sound Effects is probably my favorite jam album because it fuses a very keen sense of lyrical kind of bite with a a genuine attempt, a successful attempt, to change the sound of the band and become even more modernist than they were. Because I think by... 79, 80, 81, there was a sense that a lot of what punk was doing in 76, 77, 78 was actually, it wasn't modernist, it was actually quite conservative and quite old fashioned. So there was a determination to make a a quantum shift
1: and Paul certainly achieved that, I think. You mentioned sound effects, there's a bit in the book as well where and again, I don't want to give too many spoilers with but I've not heard Paul talk about this before. The love of Off the Wall, Michael Jackson's Off the Wall at the time, and that feeding into songs, although you might not hear it, but feeding into songs initially, like Prissy Green, for instance. So so there are some of the influences that come through in the book that he talks about that I've not heard him talk about before.
2: Well, that's very true, and I think that it's a very interesting point that you picked up on that, because not only has he not expressed an interest publicly in that record before, But it's also very different to draw a line between that record and the record he made. In fact, I would say it's almost impossible. But it's fascinating because that influence obviously
1: manifested itself in a very particular way. The other thing that comes through a lot in the book is his uncomfortable relationship with fame. Yeah. And really kicking off when, you know, going underground was the jam at their peak. And he talks about having to start making records that sounded different after that. But this fame at that point, you know, they, they were topping the charts. It really doesn't sit well with him, does it?
2: No. I mean, I don't think that's a surprise. I think that he perhaps becomes more prepared to talk about that. Because I think initially, when someone uh, is in the entertainment industry, and um, I know people don't like to think they are in the entertainment industry, but they are in the entertainment industry, and wanting success is deemed to be one of the pivotal motivators of being an entertainer, when you shun that or when you publicly sort of decry it or say you, you're not interested in this level of fame in the way that George Michael did, for instance, many people did, Paul McCartney did for a while, or if you're someone like Sharda you just say, I, I have literally no interest, not only in being famous, but also engaging in that process. And it's not done in a kind of mean spirited way. It's, it's done in a very particular way. And I think you ultimately have, have to admire Paul for that. In fact, I don't even think you have to admire it. You just have to accept it. And all of that stuff about when he became a solo artist and he had to get back on the road to make money, to reestablish himself. And again, he got back to a level of fame he probably hadn't achieved since the early 80s. And I think a lot of of cynics would say, well, you should be happy with that. And I think it's a genuine thing. It's like after you've experienced extraordinary fame, I think some people have a a huge issue with it. Mark Knopfler is another one. Martin Offler could be responsible for probably the biggest touring band in the world if he only reformed dire straits. But he has no interest in doing that. And you know what? Why should he?
1: Yeah, I thought it was really interesting when he's talking about that level of fame when he's back on like Stanley Road level and how he was going to, you know, parties, whatever, but just felt he's so sick of fancy like everybody was laughing at his jokes. He just didn't know who were true friends, all that stuff, and almost that paranoia kicks in in a way.
2: Well, I think it does. I think it calls into question critical acclaim and popularity. And I think that one of the things that Paul certainly has, he has a very good radar, not just for external bullshit, but for all, also to temper his inclinations to wander off in particular directions or pursue particular directions. Like I said earlier, it's a, he's a very harsh critic
1: of his own work and his own motivations. The Style Council is a great section of the book because, I mean, not not least lyrically, obviously, you know, a real social reflection of the times in these beautiful catchy pop songs. And you put it so brilliantly. You kind of say, on the one hand, this um, allowed Paul to uh, an opportunity to reinvent himself on a daily basis. And on the other hand, the band freed him up as a writer. But ultimately, he wanted to try something different. But the one thing I I wonder reading it is whether that approach to trying new things all the time maybe confused fans at points where, yes, there's a benefit to not knowing what you're going to get, but quite a lot the audience would have loved her in our favorite shot part two you know
2: yeah but i think every artist or every performer not every art, but but the ones who operate in this particular area are very um, aware of that and you only have to look at the template of the beatles to understand that almost none of their records were, were similar to the ones that preceded them perhaps for the first couple of years but after that there was a deliberate policy to confound people. Why don't we do X? And actually, that ambition is no different from what Paul was doing with Star Council in the early 80s. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that myself included, there were lots of things We said, wouldn't it be great to have an album like that that just sounded like the Isley Brothers,
1: the Long Hot Summer period? But why should he? You know, there's another influence actually thinking about it, the Long Hot Summer, where he talks about Nina Simone. And I've not again not heard him see mention that before, but how what what such a huge influence she was on his writing around that time.
2: Yeah, and I think that because critics often look at things from a stylistic point of view and think, well, it doesn't he doesn't make records that sound like any records that Nina Simone uh, has made. So this is this is strange and odd and and um a little bit sort of left field, but it's often to do with influences, it's to do with song structure, it's to do with mood, it's to do with feel, it's to do with lots of different things. And I think that as well as sitting down and having an, an, an instinctive musical flex in an ability to write a song, there's also the determination to write lyrics in a very particular way using different structures. That's what makes him someone who was developed as an artist, I hate using that word, but as were developed as someone who creates. And perhaps why the last half a dozen records have
1: been so extraordinary. Did you get a sense from your conversations <laughs> with Paul? And I do think this comes through in the book as well, where but like, where that comes from of that constantly wanting to push forward, constantly want to create his best work. There's a there's a wonderful moment in the book actually where he talks about I can't remember off the top of my head what the song was. He talks about writing a song and feeling like he'd written the perfect song. Yeah. And then, like that, was the point. If and he promised himself, if he ever felt like he'd done that, that would be it. He'd give up. Maybe it was aspects of it, but actually, he's going to. He's decided then to kind of go again. And if I could did it once, maybe I can do it again. This, but that seems to just be inherent in him. It's just like he's it, just always pushing for the next thing.
2: Well, I think you have
1: to, and he understands that, and he also understands it during a period where he has still has the
2: ability to to, to conjure up those those great songs. But he is due a stinker. <laughs> Have you told him that? I, I, I haven't, but he is you a thinker. He can wear that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Just the math, math, yeah.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello?
1: Um, there was a couple of other things about this, um, about his songwriting process come through. Um, one is he talks about the fact he hasn't really ever changed in the sense it's black pen writing lyrics, but he has taught, he talks about the fact the melody side of things maybe now. He's using technology, he's putting voice notes into the phone, he's, he's singing things in the middle of the night into his phone by the side of his bed or whatever. But then he, there's this, Heartbreaking moment where he mentions the fact that every year or so he just deletes those all off his phone. Anything that hasn't gone into the recording process, gone the lot. I quite like that though. It's like, yeah, get rid, move on. (laughs) Some people would put that into, you know, multiple deluxe versions of albums, you know.
2: (laughs) Oh, and they do, don't they? (laughs) Yeah. There was a uh, a friend of mine who took great delight in he'd he'd um he'd just bought them the, the new box set of a particular artist and it had everything in it. It had eighty versions of this one, blah blah blah. And I said, You're gonna play it once and you'll yeah. find it fascinating, but you will never, ever,
1: ever play it twice and of course he, he never will. Yeah. <laughs> he also talks about that studio process. So and back to the style council, you know, solid bond being a real real game changer. But I thought it was really interesting. because he talks almost about it being almost like a nine to five. It's like Monday to Friday, they're checking in, they're doing the work, but this real creative playground. And I think you've talked about Black Barn and how important that is to him now and has been Think about this purple patch, 22 Dreams Onwards and stuff. That importance of him having a safe space to operate in and to be creative um, definitely comes through in the book.
2: Well, that's good. I think it's true. You need somewhere to go to work. Um, Solid Bond is literally 200 yards from where I live. Um, Oh, I didn't know that. (laughs) Um, So I walk past it every day. But yeah, I think the barn is... His is his sanctuary. And, um, I don't think luck's got anything to do with it. I think he's created it like that, where it's where he goes to work and he can be creative anywhere, but that's where he goes to extemporize the craft, to do the stuff. You know, it's the, it's the pot factory. And he talks about, like, you know, you'd be happy never to leave.
1: It's that good. <laughs>
2: I think that's very true, actually. <laughs> If if it wasn't for sleeping and going on tour, I think he'd be very happy to spend all day, all week, all month, all year there. Frankly, one of the things about the book
1: as well, you have the lyrics, and then we have the commentary, right? So you're reading the words, and then we're you know talking about the songs or the moments in time when he, you know where he was in his life at that moment in time as well. And I found it fascinating seeing him talking about the political lyrics of the Star Council and. How a lot of people ask him, you know, why he doesn't write those types of songs now. Why does he doesn't write those political songs like he used to? And this is a, an amazing comment. He's kind of saying that actually I'm better off singing the ones, the same ones I wrote, you know, 30 years ago, because they're the same issues. They're the same. It's a bit sad, really, isn't it? It's the same issues, the same arguments. And those songs still resonate and have exactly the same meaning as they do today.
2: Yeah. I think that was a very perceptive thing of him to say, not just the fact that, the um, political regimes m- mirror each other, but the fact that I think if you've sung heartily in your youth, I think that the um, the echoes of that will, will probably stay with you. And um, I think it's it can get very tricky for people going down a particular path, writing about politics, particularly when they're uh, they're writing it from a, from a, from a point of privilege. I think that's slightly problematic sometimes because uh, there's an authenticity there that that inevitably feels a bit bogus but those are those are rebel songs those are those are um protest songs and they remain as important and as sort of Hard-edged as they were back in the uh, back in the
1: early '80s. Now, the thing is, we get into the solo years, and like I say, two sections. So there, there, there is that return of Mr. Weller, and I found it fascinating where he's talking about a. You mentioned like his dad saying to him, "No, we're skin. We have to get back on the road." But also this idea at the time that like, he wasn't feeling creative, and I suppose when you talk about that seven-year thing, actually, we've done the seven years at that point, right? We've done the Jam, we've done the Style Council, more than that actually. But in terms of like the um, that purple patch, if you like, that would have been enough for most careers, but. At she, you know, obviously we have the last 30 years of this incredible solo career as well. But he wasn't feeling creative at all at the beginning. He wasn't he said about it like he'd write stuff down during the night and then throw it away the next day. He had no interest in playing music at all.
2: Well, I think that's also a very important um, to have that ability to know when you haven't got it, I think is very important because lots of artists don't. They will just keep pumping out material, possibly even knowing that it's substandard. And when you look back, when you have a career as long as Paul's is, it's, um, you don't want it littered with speed bumps. It's, um,
1: it's difficult. Everyone's had clunkers, but he's had fewer than most, I think. One of the things I think about your approach to the book and the conversation you've got from, and obviously he was really up for this. You've, you've built this comfort zone where he can share things he's not shared before, but which I loved. But he does talk about the dark times, the darkness in him. And you, and you do get a sense of this actually when you dig into some of the lyrics, perhaps that there's some of this as well. But there were some real years when he was re- really quite unhappy and the, the drinking was out of control. The partying was out of control. And it's back to, I think, I guess where you, you'd see this, this fella on top of the world in your mind, right? Here he is, this huge big star and is, you know, on the world stage but actually that's just one side of him and you know actually there's a human being behind these songs behind the performer and there were periods where he was really low it was quite dark wasn't it? Well I think that's why
2: for me as a journalist that there are parts of the book which I find professionally fascinating because he talks about addiction and he talks about excess and he talks about his own issues with uh, with drink primarily I wasn't pressing him to talk about that because we were talking about stages of his life we were talking about the work and I think it's because it was the conversations were about work it, they, they weren't about his personal life they weren't about musician relationship, we weren't talking about the sort of arc we were talking I suppose about, about product and about work and about craft in isolation and because craft creativity is personal he was talking about where he was personally at the time when he was writing those songs so for me when he talks unguardedly i think quite unguardedly about the the dark periods of excess and addiction i i i I find that fascinating and as i say i wasn't i wasn't prompting him i wasn't leading him in that direction but i think he was incredibly honest and Mm. i think what he says also, it's a really interesting reflection and counterpoint to what he was doing artistically at the time. And perhaps it <laughs> sheds a lot of light on what's happened since. Because I think there's also that fear that a lot of artists have. It's um, the things that are meant to, to stultify you as a, as a creator or nullify you as a creator. It's the pram in the hall. It's domesticity. It's it's stopping. I won't be able to create again if I stop drinking, taking drugs, doing this, that, and the other. And he's certainly come through that because it's patently not true. I think that his ability to conquer any demons that he has has resulted in better work, not worse work. It sounds like a terrible loving, doesn't it? In fact, I I read a a rather snide review in a in a, in, in a music magazine, one of the few music magazines left, saying that I was too positive. But it's the book is got some context in it, little. But it's basically it's Paul's words. It's his book, it's not mine. I was just there to kind of write it all down and record stuff. Not everything he's done has been great, but hopefully this book frames the whole thing and perhaps shows that why some parts of what he's done, some periods, some elements, some records are better than others. But um, I mean, there were some points. I mean, I, I one of my favourites. Weller songs is full Rush from, from the first album. It's a real earworm for me. I mean, I sing it most most days, much to my wife's annoyance. And um, <laughs> I asked And they shrugged his shoulders and said, Couldn't tell you anything about that, mate. It's just, you know, Bull Rushes and um I, I quite like that.
1: Let's talk that Purple period, or the Purple years, as you yeah. frame it. So 22 Dreams, he talks about being such a pivotal record for him in so many ways. But initially, it was that it gave him confidence, which seems ludicrous, doesn't it? Here's a fellow who's at that point, what, we're 30 years into a career. And it's at that point, it gave him confidence to really do what he wanted to do with his music.
2: Yeah, and I can see how that sounds like a pivotal moment or a pivotal thing to say. But he'd all, already had sort of 30-odd years of incredible experimentation before that. And each section of his career was a almost a denial of, of the previous work in a very modernist way. I've done that. I'm going to do something separate, which which, I, which is why I think that what he considers to be his failures really sit with him because for him, like many artists, not all artists, it's all about forward motion. It's all about the next thing. I've done that. It was great. It was successful, critically, commercially, but I want to do X. And that's really important. And also that drives culture. It changes culture. It changes people. It changes people's lives.
1: That confidence is so important because he also talks about the fact that it was only 10 years ago or around about 10 years ago that his confidence as a writer really kicked in. There is a lot of this innate insecurity that comes through in the book at points.
2: But how brilliant that that insecurity... Has resulted in the body of work that he's produced in that ten years, because it's all very well having the insecurity, and then developing the ability and the confidence to do something. But as we've said, that doesn't often happen with no. people. There's lots of, I mean, there's lots of people who can, can reconstruct the architecture of what went before in terms of mode, in terms of tone, in terms of musicianship, colour, length, everything. And if you ain't got the songs, you ain't got
1: the song. There were some lovely... I mean, I know you weren't prying into his private life and stuff, but family is obviously such a big part of, of his life and always has been a, a connection to the band as well, obviously, with you know his mum and sister running the fan clubs and all that. But John Weller, and there are some lovely moments where he talks about John, his dad, but also his manager, obviously. And the, be happy children. One of the songs that you talk about being one of these moments, in where he talks about his dad so lovingly. I guess that's just coming out in the natural flow of conversation, rather than you you trying to get moments like that.
2: Yeah, because we're talking about the work, and there were some the inspiration um, for some of these lyrics were quite revelatory to me. I mean, there might be you know keener students of his work, someone like you, or whoever who has, has perhaps done more research into some of these the same things, but often. I would find what he said about something quite remarkable because they were coming from a, a place that I didn't expect. And I think that that where he talked candidly about his parents, father, his kids, some of that does come out. But again, it comes out in ways that he wants it to come out. It wasn't a book about that. It's not a book about his life. It's a book about the work. And in, inadvertently, when you talk about the work, those personal things come out.
1: Now, somebody who loves that creative process as well, there are elements where at times we're talking about the creation of the records too. I, I mean, I've always loved these stories that come through on the podcast, this change of studio techniques. So he talks about Saturn's pattern and the move over to Pro Tools. And I thought, oh, this is brilliant, right? So I, I know I said no spoilers, but this is a really lovely moment where one of the reasons for that, they actually ran out of the multi-track tape and it became so expensive, like 150 quid a roll, <laughs> that that's why they pro- they really truly embraced Pro Tools, just because of costs. Necessity,
2: that's what drives a lot of
1: technology come on <laughs> <True>. <laughs> that's very true when the book arrived i saw a little video on instagram of you unpacking you must have been like oh my god this because it is absolutely stunning and it's not just the words it's the conversation the songs and all that but the photographs within it as well i mean there are hundreds of photographs from you know people who have been on the podcast and not you must have been so proud when you opened up that package to have a look at this thing because it is a beautiful publication well,
2: genesis produced be a very good book um And I think that the other thing that Paul is very, very particular about, which probably won't surprise people, but let me tell you, is not typical, is that he looked at every page, every picture, everything. And it's a yes, no with Paul. It's like, and that's really important because lots of people uh, produce books like this now. Everyone's writing their uh, autobiography or doing a version of, and there are lots of many good, you know, there, there, there are very good publishers who are very good at packaging, very beautiful, very heartfelt, emotive, commercially successful books. But I don't think I've ever met anyone who has invested so much of their time in a book as Paul has with this. Interestingly, uh, and kind of gratifyingly, he didn't interfere with any of the text, didn't appear to want to. But then I'm, I'm kind of glad about that because... The text wasn't meant to be confrontational. It was meant to be presenting him in, in a way that he deserved to be um presented. But everything about, and there were you know, various false starts about things we were going to include, snippets of poetry, other bits and pieces, and it became more streamlined the more we worked on it. But um this is very much a book by Paul. This is Paul's book. And uh, yeah, I'm very proud to have been involved with it.
1: Was there any parameters? were there when when that you had that first conversation? Was there any were there any places he didn't want to go or you didn't want to go?
2: No, I, I remember his, his his first question was, "How long is this going to take?" <laughs> <laughs> I I remember once uh, at GQ, I um, we just photographed a, someone a famous person for something, and I met them afterwards at an event, uh, and, and we got him photographed by David Bailey, and I said, "How did the shoot go?" He said, "It was great. It was short." <laughs> What people
1: I'll, bear, want. <laughs> I'll bear that in mind for the finale of this podcast. <laughs> this is called Magic, a journal of song. Where did the title come from? Because there's a bit at the end where he talks about the fact this whole creative process is magic and the fact there's talent, there's skill, but there's a certain amount of magic attached to songwriting, which is really lovely.
2: Uh, it came from both of us. We had a very brief uh, sort of exchange about um, he suggested something. Uh, I suggested something and after about half a dozen exchanges we got to where where it is now and the, and the final t- title is paul's and i think it's uh, i think it's a perfect encapsulation of what we've done what he's done and i'm very proud of it and i think that if you are a, a well aficionado or indeed just have a, a curiosity about his working practices then you'll really enjoy this book
1: i mean it's a danger with paul that it's almost as out, out of date at the moment it's released as well right because you know new material round the corner i'm sure so. <laughs> it's
2: got to be a stinker
1: <laughs> I'll pass that on. Dylan, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed our chat. Um, I do have one final question for you. As you'll know, the purpose of this podcast is for me to get to that interview with Paul Weller, okay? Uh, are there any tips, any bits of advice? Obviously, you've been through you know, hours of conversation to get to this beautiful, beautiful book. This is just going to be a podcast. But come on, let's pass on some of your knowledge, some of your tips for me, my friend. Don't ask. <laughs> well, don't ask him. <laughs> if you don't ask, you'll
2: get. Dan, I promise you, okay? <laughs> Thank you, Dylan. Good luck with the book. Glad you enjoyed it and great to talk to you today. Take care.
1: Well, there you go. Something a little bit different on this episode. My thanks once again to Dylan Jones telling us all about Magic, A Journal of Song, the new official book by Paul Weller, available as a bookstore edition now, a signed limited edition being sent out very soon. You can order wellerbook.com or check out Walter Stone's, your local bookshop, all that kind of stuff as well. It's called Magic, A Journal of Song, Paul Weller with Dylan Jones. I like the fact that that all started as well from that little podcast chat that they'd had. It just started out without you. So you never know. You never know where this could end up, do you, eh? Hey, look, thanks for listening. More details in the show notes to this podcast, Paul Wellerfanpodcast.com. You can see a little video with Dylan and Paul Weller there chatting about the book as well. All the details on my website, Paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Something very special coming up on the next episode of the podcast. I'm going to connect the jam with Superman, the Muppets, Dire Straits, Aha and Michael Jackson's Billie Jean on the next episode of the podcast. Make sure you follow, you subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.
0: Hold up.